You're listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast. You're listening to episode 474, and I'm your co-host, Brittany Martin. We have a returning host to the show. Kyle Daigle is the chief operating officer at GitHub. Kyle joined GitHub in 2013 and built and scaled the ecosystem engineering teams and worked on the acquisitions of SEML, NPM, and others. He now oversees culture operations and communications for the business. Kyle is committed to helping set GitHub's course for employees, customers, and community as the team scales as a remote-first, AI-integrated, developer-centric company. Prior to GitHub, Kyle worked as an engineering and product leader in fintech and ran an engineering consulting business. When he isn't working with hovers and customers, he's enjoying a quiet weekend in Connecticut with his wife and two sons. Welcome back to the show, Kyle. Thank you, Brittany. It's so good to be back. It is so good to have you. So, Kyle, you were last on the show November 11th, 2020. So we won't talk about the dark year. (laughs) But that was a great episode because we talked about strategic programs and the Arctic Code Vault. Mm -hmm. So we got some spoilers from the bio. But, you know, what has happened since then? Oh, man, so much has happened since then. So, I mean, on May 1st of this year, I was super honored to take the role of chief operating officer of GitHub. Ironically, the Saturday before that, just about, I think, was my 10-year GitHub anniversary. And so I've gotten to see GitHub change and grow through all of that time from a relatively small company that got some funding to being acquired by Microsoft to where we are today. I don't think any of us could have predicted, Brittany, so many years ago when we were chatting together, things like Copilot coming about seemed like science fiction. And the funny thing has just been, it happened so fast. We were talking internally at GitHub about some of the plans we were making and how we're talking about our strategy. And AI and Copilot came in so quickly that it wasn't very long ago that that wasn't even on the list. It was from the GitHub Next team, which is our sort of pragmatic research team. And they built this thing that has really shaken things up and clearly with ChatGPT and AI just all up. So much has changed since 2020. But I mean, since you mentioned the Arctic Code Vault, I feel compelled to bring it back. Like you said, in November of 2020, I'm not entirely sure we all knew what was going to be coming. Ah. (laughs) (laughs) So it seems, I guess, prescient is the correct word, but maybe that's not quite right. However, the Arctic Code Vault We took the world's most popular open source code and put it on this silver halide film that's supposed to last a thousand years after testing. And so we had done that. And since then, last fall, we had to wait for the pandemic to sort of calm down a little bit. But what we did was we built this massive steel vault to actually contain all the reels. And very interestingly, we were working with a group of anthropologists and sociologists and One of the things that they told us about this entire project was that only beautiful, interesting things are maintained via antiquity. So like if it looks boring or if it's not interesting, it gets thrown out or left behind. So we took this massive steel vault and then we worked with an artist to build this really beautiful AI generative art on top of it. They etched it into the steel so it'll last for at least hundreds and hundreds of years, if not thousands of years. And so we finally got that in there. All the reels are in there. And interestingly, again, the data capture was from February 2nd of 2020. So before everything kind of went haywire, we took a (laughs) snapshot of the world. And I think even pandemic aside, we took a snapshot before AI became a day-to-day topic for all of us. Obviously, machine learning and everything we've been using in a variety of ways for quite some time. But 
now that everyone's using it, or our parents are talking about ChatGPT and how they're using it, it's really cool that we have this snapshot of open source code that's, you know, going to sit there for quite some time from before all this really took hold. That's amazing. And so then you were working on strategic programs at GitHub. Was that just a straight jump to COO or was there some more progress in between there? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, sure. So, I mean, from that point of time where we were kind of building all these really interesting programs and teams to solve very specific problems. I took on the role of VP of strategy at GitHub. And and what that really means, because that's one of those titles that (laughs) makes its way around and it means something different for everyone. And what it means to me was how can we take that unique experience and value proposition that GitHub has? You know, we're the home of open source. Every developer, whether you're using GitHub at work or not, touches GitHub at some point during their day when you're pulling a package down or you're scanning your code for secrets, how can we ensure that you're getting the best experience from GitHub? It's making you productive. It's making you happy. And what other parts of the company at GitHub can we bring to the table to make sure that experience is great? Like, what's the support experience or how are we going to invest in this for the next 10 or 15 years, never mind the next year? So I did that for a period of time. And then there was an opportunity to look at how GitHub is running the company itself. So much has changed, but at the same time, a lot hasn't. You know, we still care very deeply about developers first. We're building features that we think developers want. We're not trying to build features that we don't think the average developer that's working day to day in GitHub is going to love and enjoy as well as make them productive. And we've got a lot of developers at GitHub and that are building inside GitHub every day to ship GitHub. And what do they need and how can we make their jobs easier and how can we ensure everyone that works to support our customers has what they need. And so that's how the COO role ended up coming to be. And I couldn't be happier. Like you said in the intro, I'm a developer. That's how I started my career. I still write code on the side. And then at some point during my career, I wanted to switch to solve business problems, a different kind of problem that are very people based and not code based most of the time. And I love helping other people find success at GitHub in the world when they're helping build this enormous platform. And that's the honor that I get to have now in this new role. I think it's my first couple of weeks still when this gets posted out. I love that so much. When you were host of the show, we've talked about this before. I used to enjoy the long conversations that you would have with Sean, where you would talk about the complicated challenges you had around webhooks, you know, like at GitHub. I mean, you were the expert on that. And just you always had these amazing projects that you were working on. So that was really cool. And you definitely are a developer at heart, but you've been at GitHub for so long and have been so loyal. So, I mean, it just it makes so much sense. You have that deep legacy knowledge of all the things that GitHub was and now is. So that's cool. And then also, you've always been remote. I love that you are a COO for a company that is remote first, because I remember thinking to myself, how cool is that Kyle has made remote first work for him? And now it's a standard. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, (laughs) I mean, I've been thinking about this a fair bit myself, because I've always been remote. And I think over the past four years or so, GitHub has become increasingly work from wherever you are, including the leadership team itself, which has made like a huge difference for all the time that we spent at home during the pandemic. I think it demonstrated that with the right investment, with the right support, with the right enablement, we can do most of our work from wherever we are. 
helps to come together to build social connection. It helps to align and sort of work through creative problems. I do think solving a brand new idea or creating something from a brand new idea is best done in a great collaborative Zoom or in person if you can do it. And then everyone can kind of go back to where they're working. But there was a period of time where my family and I were convinced we would hit a point if I'm lucky in my career that I would have to move to San Francisco or I'd have to move to Seattle or I'd have to move to New York City or some other enormous technology city. And now I've been pretty passionate (laughs) about that not being a thing that I have to do and not because all those cities are not wonderful places and I love visiting them, but I've made a choice to optimize for my family. Mm -hmm. I live next door to my brother now. Our families are nearby and I really value that. And I get to work for one of the largest websites in the world that help developers do their best work every single day. And so in this role, I get the pleasure of being able to continue to invest in that remote work aspect of GitHub and how we enable hubbers to do a great job because remote doesn't come for free. It takes more effort, in my opinion, than just having everyone come to an office because you have to enable all kinds of different workflows that are easy to do when you and I run into each other in the hallway. You can't really run into each other. You have to chat on Slack. You got to do email. You got to look at your GitHub project board. You got to go on Zoom or Teams or whatever. Doing that work has given me so much sort of joy and energy because it's going to allow people to make the right choice for them and get to do some of the best work of their lives. Okay. Wow. I'm passionate about this, Brittany. (laughs) I know. I love that. (laughs) That's so great, Kyle. As an engineering manager or an engineer, too much of your time gets sucked up with downtime issues, troubleshooting, and error tracking. How can you spend more time shipping code and less time putting out fires? This is a question I'm always asking myself. Well, Honey Badger is how. It's a suite of monitoring tools made specifically for developers. It's the only system that combines error monitoring, uptime monitoring, and cron and heartbeat monitoring into one clean, fast interface. Sure, you can get familiar with any interface, but why waste your time learning some Franken-style interface that looks like an airline cockpit when what you need is clarity and speed? You won't know if Honey Badger will really save you time and trouble until you can see how it works in your own tool chain. With two lines of code and five minutes, you can see for yourself. Honey Badger automatically hooks into popular web frameworks like Ruby on Rails, job systems, authentication libraries, and front-end JavaScript. Imagine fixing errors before your users can even report them. Five minutes of your time with a free trial is all it takes to see if it will work for you. It just might be the best five minutes you've spent in a long while. Check out honeybadger.io. I'm curious, what is a day in the life of the COO of GitHub? Even though you're a couple weeks in, we'll give that disclaimer. (laughs) But is there a typical day at this point? The typical day starts with me usually getting on my computer for work around 8.30. My kids hop on the bus around 8.15. I'm in Connecticut. I'm in the farm portion of Connecticut. Identify with Boston, not New York. (laughs) And so I'm in the Eastern time zone. The vast majority of the folks that I work with tend to be in either central or western time zone. So usually between 8.30 to 11, I'm either reading or writing documents. And so I'm responding to ideas that people have. I'm responding to sort of proposals on how we can invest in a great Hubber experience or where we're putting our attention on our IT systems and what tools we're using and why we're using them or maybe less exciting things like what 
procurement systems should look like and why they're working that way. I do all that in the morning. I find reading and writing just much easier to do in the morning. I never used to say I was a morning person, but having kids changes you. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to our team, Kyle. Exactly. (laughs) And now I'm like definitely a morning person. So I do all of that. I was talking to a friend and I, I just went through some Google Docs and I sort of started to count the words and on an average day, I'm usually reading like 150,000 words at this point. Like it's a crap ton of words just because my style is I like to build as much context as I possibly can. And then I just hopefully enable others to make decisions. And that usually starts around 1130 a.m., 11 a.m. Eastern. If I'm being maybe slightly less kind to my colleagues on the West Coast, you have to do an 8 a.m. meeting with me. <laughs> and so then I kind of have theme days. Monday is my first team day. So all of my directs meet with me on Monday in a leads meeting and all the folks that work with me meet with me on Monday. On Tuesday is our leadership team day. So we have a staff meeting where we're reviewing the business, we're reviewing the various products, how they're working, why they're working that way, where we need to invest. That's another all day meeting. On Wednesday and Thursday, I focus with my teams. So that means doing subgroup meetings. That means joining in and listening in on the plans for GitHub Universe for this year. And then Friday, I try to keep clean for me to meet with people in the community, people who are working in software, and for me to do some of my sort of like deep thinking, if you know, of Bill Gates, Think Weeks. I think Warren Buffett does something similarly. I try to keep most Fridays free so that way I can sit down and kind of figure out the hardest problem of the week. And so I mentioned switching from engineering to business problems, mainly because I'm chasing the hardest problems (laughs) from my perspective. And it's not engineering problems, aren't development problems, aren't difficult. They definitely are. But I enjoy the complexity of the overall business problems, which include people and customers and systems like all in one. And so most of my days are just going to the next hardest problem and then working with my fabulous team to take what's been figured out and help deliver it for GitHub. Wow, Kyle, you sound like a certified professional. I am extremely (laughs) impressed. (laughs) I mean, it never used to be this way. In the good old days, Brittany, I was definitely the like sit down, enter the flow state for a couple of hours, pop off and have breakfast, maybe put on a Twitch stream and then like put my nose back down. And nowadays it's color coded calendars, to do list systems very little email, that sort of thing. (laughs) I love that. So you're coming at it in a different way because we've met those business people out there that want to start their own business and they realize that they're going to need technical help. And so they already have the business acumen. And so they get the technical skills. So that way they can make that transition over either to a developer or their own technical co-founder. You were already technical. And so you Mm -hmm. wanted to take on the business challenges. So I'm curious... Do you have any advice for developers out there who eventually want to make it to a C-suite role and they're going to need at least some background on those business challenges? How did you get that experience and did you reach outwards to anything in order to get that to happen? I think there's a couple different ways to get more of that sort of holistic experience after you you feel pretty confident about your development side. I think one of the things I did was doing work with nonprofits. You know, I think there's a great reason to do that, to help the community or help the solve the problem that you're working with. For me, there was a local nonprofit, the Hockenham Valley Community Council that helped my local hometown that I'm no longer in, basically just help with food insecurity, job placement services, and et cetera. And I started to sort of donate and read all their documents and sort of work with them a bit because It also helped me understand what a small business looks like. Ultimately, a nonprofit is a business of some kind. You know, it's shedding off its money to help people instead of 
invest and then gain more revenue. So I found that to be a really valuable way to both do something really great in the world, but you also do get a benefit from diving in and sort of understanding the holistic problem. For me, my weakest point was the finance side. When I sort of did this jump, I wasn't super familiar with balance sheets or why the PL even mattered or how contribution margin played in and so on and so forth. And so what I kind of just did was asked a lot of questions. I was very lucky to work with some really great finance people at GitHub or who were happy to walk me through things at GitHub. And I worked at startups, the same thing where as a developer, it wasn't really part of my job to understand why we needed as much investment money as we needed, but I wanted to know. (laughs) And so, you know, I learned and there's some great YouTube videos and books that cover this sort of area. So that kind of helps lay a foundation. But like I said before, I mean, for me, it's always just been about finding a real problem and driving for as much impact as you can and solving that problem. I'm one of a group that loves dates, you know, like to have a date. I think that comes from the technical theater background when I was in school. I went to school for that instead of software for reasons back then. And part of that is you have a date, you have a show, it's going to happen either way. So do your best to make sure you're in as good a spot as you can be and trim the fat where you need to. I think we can learn a lot about that in business as well. When we're making a decision, I love saying, okay, what are the boundaries? What do we have to do in order to hit this goal? And so I started doing that with a variety of problems, mergers and acquisitions. We were acquiring some companies at GitHub. I was able to sort of learn a lot through that process. And there's a date when it comes to an acquisition, you're going to close it on this date one way or another or something, you know, or something bad has happened, essentially, you weren't prepared and things can't go. And so looking at problems that you believe have high impact and trying to reduce as much of the lower impact work, or rather the stuff that you kind of are habitually doing every day, but you know, deep down, if you were to pause and write down, what are the most important things I've done today? Are those things actually moving the needle for the company, for me personally, for the project that I'm working on, for the open source project or anything like that? I feel like that constant reevaluation is usually what I tell people that are interested in going into a leadership position or a C-suite position. It's that how can we do less work and get the same return? Is there a way to do that without taking a shortcut and causing a big problem down the road, basically stealing from the future to pay for now? That won't work either. But that focus on how can I deliver this or how can I get this in the hands of customers as quickly as I can? We do that as developers all the time. We use open source to do a lot of that. We're leaning on the shoulders of giants and building on top of what they've built and delivering it to the end user. I think business is the same thing. You're just not talking in code and open source. You're probably talking more about the people collaboration at hand and how you can get everyone on the same page and then how you can get them to work towards that single goal and then say, okay, did we do as much as we could here? If the answer is yes, then great. You go on to the next one. If not, then you kind of learn from your mistake and go on to the next thing. I think that's so smart because I came from the opposite side. I came from the business world. I had an Mm -hmm. MBA and then I crossed into being a developer. And you're right. It's all about resources. Mm -hmm. You know, you might be talking about code, but we might be talking about supply and demand. So it's all relative. You're right. There's a lot of lessons that can be shared between. I also love the advice about working with nonprofits just because they tend to be more forgiving because they're just looking for help. And so they're a great place in order to learn. And you might find some people like yourself who know what they're doing and (laughs) you get exposure that way as well. 
So Kyle, since I have you here, I'm going to put you in the GitHub hot seat because there is a bunch of initiatives that are happening at GitHub and I would love to get some updates on how they are going. So first one up, I would love to hear more about GitHub Accelerator. Yeah. So the Accelerator was a super interesting project when we kicked it off. Again, earlier on, love how this all works perfectly. I mentioned what can GitHub uniquely do that it might be more difficult for others. And so with sponsors all up, GitHub sponsors, we've been trying to find ways to make open source sustainable. With Accelerator, the thesis is sort of, if you wanted to build an open source or an open core project and turn it into a business, how would you go about doing that? And so last month we welcomed 20 projects and they're each receiving $20,000 via GitHub sponsors to kind of figure that out. We have a 10-week course where we're working with leading people from the open source community to go through this program and they're working their way through. Right now, we received over a thousand applications from 20 countries, kind of like all over the map in terms of what they're working on, like I said, where they're from. And we're starting to see kind of how things are working and how GitHub can play a bigger role in supporting open source or open core businesses. We want to make open source a viable career path. And so there's a couple of other ways we're trying to do that. But, you know, there's projects like Seamly2D, which is a pattern making software looking to democratize and decentralize fashion design and production. Poly, which is a Go package for engineering organisms. There's a whole GraphQL library, a strawberry GraphQL and Python, which is close to my heart. All these projects that are trying to figure out, okay, if we can work on this full time, what's the right model? Who can we learn from? And then how can we ultimately keep doing this work in a variety of ways via GitHub sponsors, via joining a GitHub customer and working on their staff, but being able to work on this full time, their project full time by going open core. Mike Purim, great example of that, where Sidekick has the open core approach as well. So this is the first round. It's going well. I'm excited to see kind of how the 10 week program ultimately finishes and what we can learn from that. And then we'll share that with the community. This episode is brought to you by FastRuby.io. Do you need to upgrade Rails but don't have the budget? FastRuby.io has a Rails upgrade service that offers fixed cost monthly upgrade services starting at $1,000 per month. Make your code base more than 1% more maintainable every month. Schedule a call to discuss our technical debt remediation services at FastRuby.io. Remember, plans start at $1,000 per month. Thanks to FastRuby.io for supporting the show. Does that line up with any sort of research that you're doing or is the goal to learn a lot from this pilot and then keep doing the program or is this all TBD? Yeah, I mean, it's ship to learn. One of GitHub's models is that we only know so much when we start. And I think that's true for every project. And I think personally for me, I think the thing I repeat most to everyone on my team is what is the thing that we can all agree on right now? And can we just start that versus let's get the perfect plan together that figures out all of the edges and all of the potential possibilities. And so with the accelerator, this has been an idea along with the fund and others that we'll talk about presumably, but like there's a couple of things that we've always wanted to do, but we kind of caught up ourselves on, well, how should we go about doing that? Or what's the consequence of doing this versus that? And the thing that I was working with Nathrie at GitHub for a while now was let's just do it. Let's get the money. Let's do it. Let's learn. Let's get them as many connections as we can, because we know that from normal like VC-based accelerators, the network effect is huge. And so let's just put that all together. And then at the end of this, we're going to do an enormous retro with the participants and understand 
what went well, what didn't go so well that we could improve for next time, and then figure out what happens next for the accelerator or how it could become a part of sponsors. Because again, the goal is to make open source a career path. How we do it, we're shipping to learn just like we do with software. I think that's such a healthy way to look at it. And if I crocheted, I think I would crochet the what can we all agree on and let's get started there. Yes. Such good <laughs> advice. <laughs> like <laughs> Yes, completely. Because it's funny, like you mentioned coming from the business side to the development side and myself, vice versa. It feels like every time I'm in a meeting where there's kind of like friction or we're not really sure how to take that next step, whether that be product, design, business stuff, operations, whatever, usually we can all go, okay, but like, we could give them money and they'll figure it out. Or like we could (laughs) start this program and they'll kind of take it from there. Or in product, we can say, well, let's just get them into the product and see how they use it. We can learn from it. I'm rarely convinced that having a better or a perfect strategy will outweigh more at-bats, more attempts making something good. Because if I get to do eight projects in a year and 50% of them fail, I'm still outpacing someone that did two projects and 50% of them fail. Sorry for the sports analogy as I'm not very sports guy. I'm not either. <laughs> but, you go right ahead. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> but, you know, more at-bats usually wins. Yes. <laughs> well, you did mention it, so I do have to ask about it, is GitHub Fund. I know that launched in November. Yep. So how is that going? It's going well. So GitHub Fund, we built in partnership with M12, which is Microsoft's investment arm. Again, this question was essentially, so if you start with GitHub sponsors, you go to the accelerator and you want to build a developer productivity, developer tool, an open core developer tool, how can you get funding to go kick that off? So last November, like you said, we launched the GitHub fund, which is a $10 million fund in partnership with M12. And we've done two investments that are public so far, Code C which maps kind of repo so developers can more confidently make changes in their code. And then Novu, which I'm personally quite interested in, which is an open source notifications infrastructure. I think that every developer at some scale of a project has built notifications infrastructure. And at GitHub, I can attest, it's one of the hardest things to scale ultimately because there's just more and more that comes down the pipe. And so Novu is trying to solve that. And so we work with them. We, in partnership with M12, invest usually in an early round on their side. And then, you know, where we can, we partner and support them. We give them feedback. We connect them with people in the community so that way they can kind of keep moving their developer tooling that has the sort of open source bias to it forward. Okay, well, I feel like we just keep moving through like the money things, which I'm so glad that you're here, (laughs) Kyle. (laughs) So I do want to talk about how GitHub Sponsors has been going because that has been out for a couple years. And it's been kind of a de facto way of like supporting individual contributors. But I know that you are growing that out to be more. So GitHub Sponsors was, I think, the first sort of attempt at how to make, like I said, the open source work a viable career path. And since we launched it, there's been over $33 million contributed to open source developers and projects via sponsors. And so what we've been focused on is expanding availability. We've doubled that in the last year. So more people in more countries can decide to use sponsors, be sponsored. We've made feature improvements to make it easier to find people to sponsor. And the big focus, I think, that we've found is that individuals sponsor projects that they love. I sponsor Home Assistant. I use Home Assistant at home all the time. Absolutely love the project. Would be lost without it. And so I sponsor the core maintainer of that project. But who uses more 
open source than anyone, that's organizations, companies. So in beta last year, we launched GitHub Sponsors for Organizations, which makes it easier for organizations to sponsor projects and people on GitHub. So that includes bulk sponsorships. You can use an API to say, I'd like to sponsor all of these people in a much quicker way. And we found that sponsorship from organizations are worth on average nearly 15 times more than sponsorship from an individual. And so right now, more than 40% of sponsorships are coming from organizations. 3,500 plus organizations participated in this beta. And we're talking like big names like AWS, American Express, Shopify, Mercedes-Benz. And now, as of April 4th of this year, org-funded sponsorships are generally available to everyone. So we think it's important that individuals can put their money where their mouth is. And if they want to support an open source project, they can. We've also just made it as easy as is possible for companies to look at what they're using via open source and more easily go and sponsor the projects right on GitHub. And as a company, GitHub itself is doing this. You know, we're looking at additional models to invest in our dependencies and ultimately the entire open source community. And so we invested over a million dollars in our community last year. Some of that, including for our dependencies, we give about $120 million worth of actions away a year for open source. And again, since the inception of sponsors, transactions from individuals have been fee free. So we're trying to support the community and help encourage people to join us in supporting open source in the way that they find to be correct. And of course, like I said, let's bring organizations to the table so that way they can do their part in looking at their dependencies, the open source that they depend on, and ultimately delivering that to the GitHub sponsors on the platform. I totally agree. It's amazing how organizations have like no problem, like no blinking at like a $5,000 pairing tool. But when it comes to actually contributing back to open source, it's hard to justify it. It's hard to get that organized and make it easy. And so if you have the ability to scan someone's dependencies and be able to link that up to sponsorships, I think that is a fantastic initiative. And I'm excited to see. I'm thrilled to hear that that went into GI. Yeah. It's also just operationally difficult. I think for most of the GitHub customers, when we talk to them about why aren't you playing a bigger role in open source, it's very rare that a customer or someone in the community is going, well, we don't want to, or it's not important to us. You know what I mean? It's and the reality is there's a legal team, there's a finance team, there's a procurement team somewhere going, well, how am I going to send $100 checks or 10 $5,000 checks to open source projects? Who do I get a tax form from? They're not all in the, in the United States and so on and so forth. And so while I think that when sponsors started, it felt like just an easier way to, you're already storing your code here. You're already pulling open source from here. Why don't you help the open source projects that you love on GitHub? But I think where it's evolved to is similar to how we've changed the way developer productivity works or how we're ensuring that teams can collaborate well together. Well, a big corporation should be able to say, we've put aside money for open source. Now, how do we distribute it? And GitHub can now kind of raise its hand and say, well, we have a tool for that. We have a couple of APIs. We have ways for you to figure it out. And I think you can see that in the number of organizations that have chosen to do this is just if you make it easy, I believe that organizations will do the right thing because we all rely on open source. We need it to be around for a while. And we need folks who choose to sort of go into this career path in running their projects to be able to do that and have a healthy, viable life and career with these easier tools that companies can go use to do it. 
I agree with you. And holy moly, is it a recruiting tool if you openly care about open source and funding it? It's amazing because developers know this. And so if you can be one of the first organizations who gets this and openly talks about it, I mean, the recruiting pull, you get your pick. Yep. Yep. I mean, I completely agree. It's one of the ways that customers are telling us like how they can both support the community. And also, you know, a lot of these folks they're supporting sometimes decide to join their company and just work on the project full time anyway. Or that's kind of one of the ideas behind Accelerator. But also in other ways, it's just your logo is going to show up there when you sponsor it. Similar to my little gravatar sitting there for Home Assistant. You just got to put your money where your mouth is. And sometimes that was hard to do. And Now that it's easier, I think we're seeing more and more companies join us in doing it. Well, the stuff that we've talked about so far today has been pretty cool. But Kyle, let's get to the new stuff. So (laughs) (laughs) I want the exclusive. So yesterday, June 13th, some exciting news came out of GitHub. Do you care to share? Oh, man. I mean, there's so much stuff going on. So, okay, it's kind of funny that we talked about all these things and we left AI <laughs> and the impact of AI towards the end because normally it's the thing I'm coming out of the barn with. I mean, so we've had Copilot, GitHub sort of code pair programmer for a little bit now. It was in technical preview for a while at Universe last year in November. We shared a lot of what's coming down the pipe. And we talked about Copilot X earlier this year, which is sort of our vision for where AI and developer productivity can come together. and. Clearly, there's a chat option that's it's very cool to use and makes it much easier for you to like debug errors that are happening in your IDE or in your terminal. You can just kind of like type and it'll you can ask it questions about what's going on and why it's going and get an update. There's a documentation tool and experiment that, you know, is generating documentation based on what you're asking of it, as well as sort of the context from the repository. A bunch of other experiments in the Copilot X vein, but Nowadays, I feel like every developer has played with some version of this or chat GPT to do some of this work. And I think the thing that I've been most interested in these studies about what's the impact of this has been, you know, we talk about more developer productivity or that you're able to develop code faster. Or we did a study that said people who use Copilot say that they're feeling more fulfilled in their job than they were before. But I think the thing that we're all kind of curious about is like, What's the impact in the day-to-day on a team? Because that's generally how you're writing code. Like some folks are writing code on their own. That's me right now because I'm not writing code at work. I'm writing it for my own personal projects. But, you know, most folks at work are writing it as part of a team. So we partnered with Wakefield Research to kind of investigate this with us. And so kind of like hot off the presses, there was a survey of 500 U.S.-based developers at companies with a thousand plus employees. So relatively big companies. And what we found is that Almost every developer is using some type of AI coding tool, either at work or in their personal life. It is so pervasive across sort of all of their use. And then 70% of developers believe that using AI coding tools will offer them an advantage at work with learning and development being at the top of the list. We talk about productivity gains all the time. And I think when you're looking at a buying decision, like you were saying, no pain buying a $5,000 pair programming tool. And I think that when you're talking to your manager or your manager's manager or the boss or the CTO or whatever, the productivity gains can't be denied. But I really think the secret of AI coding tools is going to be in how they can help you, particularly via the, some of the chat functionality that we're building, 
to learn about a new code base, to understand, well, I've only written in Angular, so now I'm being forced to use React. And so help me. I know Angular, but I don't understand how React works. Or you're going from JavaScript to Ruby or Ruby to JavaScript or Ruby to Python or any of these directions. I really think AI and the coding tools and functionality via Copilot are helping both, obviously, the productivity gains, but also, you know, helping developers really level up, whether you're a senior developer, staff developer, junior developer, anywhere on the spectrum. But I think the thing that is I'm most excited about, <laughs> or at least most interested in. <laughs> this is the thing. <laughs> yeah, all of that is awesome. And I like it's very exciting. And I think it's easy to kind of forget how new and nuanced and interesting this is. But one of the things I've really been curious about is if, Brittany, you're using Copilot at work, are we more or less likely to collaborate? It would seem like it could be like the movie Her or something where we're just focusing on the AI to solve a lot of the problems. But we found that four out of five of the enterprise developers expect, you know, AI tools are going to enhance team collaboration. They're going to be reviewing code, talking more about the implementation or the architecture or why they're building it a certain way rather than spending all of their time on just building it. They're able to sort of up-level more of the conversation. And that I find really, really interesting because I believe software development is ultimately a team sport, whether you look at it from the open source community angle, or you look at it from your business or your enterprise. And so the more time that we can get smart, talented, kind, generous people together to work and talk and create things and then be sort of super powered by an AI pair programmer, that's amazing. And so I'm like really excited and encouraged by some of the early results of this because I want AI to be viewed and used as a creative tool for developers to use. That's how I look at it. And that's how I use it day to day. It's helping me get my ideas down on paper faster so I can spend more time kind of coming up with the idea or perfecting it once I've already sort of gotten that first pass down. So I'm excited to look at this report because it's just coming out. We're sharing it with the world, more information about how we think developers are going to be working together more remotely than ever in the age of AI. Yeah. So I want to dig into that collaboration piece of it, Kyle, because I think that is really interesting. When you say collaborating, so let's say you're building that tried and trusted notification system, right? <laughs> yeah, sure. And you're using AI to help you build that. Is there like a feedback loop that you build your notification well, it's stable? So is there some sort of feedback that's going back into the AI so that when I build my notification system, then I'm given the correct architecture to do it? Or is there a possibility that you and I interface because we're working on the same problem? Could you maybe like explain sure. that bit? There's a couple different ways that this sort of plays out. And so a tool like Copilot has the context of your project and your editor, and it's able to use that information in order to make better suggestions for you and that project. It's able to help any coworkers that are sort of working in the same space be able to better match the sort of framework or match the pattern that you're using. All of those things are true. But then also, when we look at collaboration workflows, particularly, say, in the pull request, the reality is that it takes a lot of work for you to write a pull request, me not know what you're writing about, and then for me to go in and read your pull request, sort of like page all that information in. And I might even leave a comment that's like, Brittany, this doesn't quite look right because maybe you're using an instance variable in a place where you shouldn't be for whatever reason, because we don't do that here sort of thing. 
I could make a comment like that, but then the AI could see my comment and suggest the solution. It could say, well, Brittany, here's, I think, the fix. Just click this button and accept it. Or Uh, it could review your PR for you. And so then when it goes, Kyle, you're using modules the wrong way. You should actually be using classes here or whatever. I might be like, yeah, I never used classes in my last job because my old boss only let me use modules or whatever. And so I can ask the bot to explain it to me or you could come in and help me understand it because you didn't have to spend your time sort of helping me rewrite this pull request or calling out every place I did the wrong thing. Copilot could go through and just make those changes for you. And so we're sort of at the very beginning of these collaboration workflows where we think they're going to make you more productive. This research is saying it's likely it's going to make you more collaborative, but also it just like honestly gives you time. It gives you time to do the part of the job that you love the most, which is usually like coming up with the idea and writing it down less so well, hold on a minute. We only use camel case here, like those sorts of things yes. or doing an upgrade, even an upgrade on rails points. Like those have gotten far less painful than in the good old days yeah. uh, where the jumps <laughs> were super painful. But like there's a world, you know, conceivably where the AI could do the vast majority of that for you and run the tests and learn from the tests when they fail or see the deprecation notices and update those for you. And then you're just going, okay, let me test this in staging. Well, you make a good point too, because it's not necessarily that the AI knows about what everybody does in terms of classes versus modules, but the AI can learn what we do here. Like we like double quotes here, whether or not that's right or wrong to everybody else. The AI knows that we like them here. Exactly. Because I think that's the thing when I talk to customers and developers are using Copilot, it's interesting because everyone has like a very strong opinion that their way is the unique way. Well, here we don't do that. Or here we always have to put these description blocks up front or whatever. And it's really interesting to watch the AI model just rip us apart and be like, well, you're not that special. (laughs) You know, this is very normal. And or like we are just so pattern based that we're able to quickly understand what you're attempting to do. And then Copilot will just fix it for you. And so there's even been cases when I talk to customers who are like, we kind of have a proto language inside of our company. For example, it's Ruby under the hood, but it's meta programmed to hell. And so like we force everyone to use that and you've never trained on that. And so how could Copilot possibly do it? And the reality is it's using a bunch of math under the hood to predict based on what's in your repo, what's in your context, what's in the corpus of training data. Put some code out there in a lot of cases, not all cases, to be clear, but in a lot of cases, it can do it because it's a pattern. It can discern the pattern and it can use it to help make you more productive. And so there's definitely cases where Copilot or other tools could use fine tuning or embeddings or other tricks of the trade with AI to help make it more like you. But in a lot of cases, it's just going to act like we're all in high school and we're not as special or unique as we thought we were. And (laughs) and it's just going to deliver the solution that we were looking for on the first try. That is the perfect way to wrap up. Kyle, Thank you so much, because I am so excited to dig into this research. Of course, listeners will have that all linked up in the show notes. How can listeners follow you, Kyle? Yeah, the best way to follow me, you can follow me at KDaigle on Twitter or on GitHub. Or if you're into it, now that I'm on Fully Professional, you can follow me on LinkedIn as Kyle Daigle as well. See, (laughs) I'm a businessman now. You are a businessman now. Kyle, thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been amazing to catch up. And just again, congratulations on your new role. We are so excited to see what you do this year. Thanks so much for having me, Brittany. It was such a joy. Hopefully in a couple of years, I can come back and share some other funny stories about what I've been up to. 100%. 
You've been listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast. Follow us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever fine podcasts are downloaded to stay in the loop on Ruby on Rails and open source software. While you're at it, please leave us a review. And thank you for listening.